Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. We are making a little bit of breaking points history this morning. That focus group that we have been teasing now for, I guess, weeks yes, at this point. We have some results that we can share with you. Um, the gentleman who ran the focus group, James from JL Partners, is going to be here to go through some of the top clips. We've got stuff for you, though, that we're going to be unrolling all week, so we're very excited about that. In addition to that, we have some big news stories that we want to cover. Um, there was a real big expose in the New York Times about an American arms dealer to Ukraine. That is very revealing. This is just as uh, the G20 summit has also wrapped up. We have some big news I know you guys are going to be excited about. Nancy Pelosi has announced she is running for re-election again, Sagar. So everyone rejoice about that. Um, and in terms of uh, JFK news, this is an interesting development. One of the Secret Service agents that was there in Dallas at the time of his assassination has decided he wants to tell his story and it does not line up with the official narrative, so we'll break those details down for you as well. But before we get to any of that, huge, huge thank you to the premium subscribers who made this focus group possible. Yes, uh, I uh, look, we keep saying it. We finally have a finished work product. You guys are going to be able to see it already. Uh, our coverage, our focus group has been getting mainstream media attention, um, and it, that's only possible because of all of you. That's a big deal for an independent show like ours, and these things cost a lot of money. We want to continue to keep doing them. You know, They're well into the five figures in terms of the cost, so Every, any one of you who is signing up, you are being tremendously helpful in funding these expansion endeavors. So breakingpoints.com, if you are able to, it means the world to us. And we're producing good work. One of the things I'm most proud of in our focus group, not only about the attention it's already got, you know, even though it's been 
one day is that we got to things that the regular media companies just were not getting to. And I think what we really did is we are giving people a very good view of like, this is what people actually think. Show, don't tell is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Too many people are always speaking on behalf of others. And, you know, we're very proud to be able to elevate just normal voices and be like, listen, this is, these are the people who support Trump or support DeSantis or support Vivek or some people who are undecided. This is where they get the news. This we is got, what they We got think. a Doug Burgum supporter. Yeah, in we this got group. a Doug Burgum supporter, which is <laughs> hilarious. But the point, you know, that f from watching the whole thing, which our amazing crew did such a good job is I was like, I just came away with a way better understanding of like how people think mm -hmm. of, of like people who are engaged in this, who, you know, normal everyday life uh, on Facebook, moms, school teachers, people who are retired. And they're like, this is what they actually think about politics. So refreshing, actually, to take a break from whatever, you know, pundits and how they're talking about. Yeah, it. I mean, listen, like polls have some use that can be limited, but to actually hear voters in their own words describe who they support, why they support them, what they think about the major issues of the day, I think, uh, you know, it's it's not scientific, but it's incredibly valuable. Just to give people a sense of how we're doing this, so for the main show, we're going to be showing you some of the top clips every day this week um, and providing you, you know, with our thoughts and reaction to some of the really interesting moments. Today, we're going to focus on kind of the top line, the who is everybody supporting and why and some of that, um, that information. And then throughout the week, we also have some more issue-specific clips that we can show you as well. Um, for premium subscribers, you are going to have access to the whole thing um, this week, so you'll be able to get access to all of that first, and then later in the week, we'll have put it all together for everybody. There so, you go. Yeah, so as you said, premium subs, you guys are going to get the full thing uh, before anybody else. We're going to give you a full, uh, uh, completely produced version of which we're working on. We're Again, we're really, really proud of it. With all of that, we got James Johnson of JL Partners standing by. Let's get to it. As we have been discussing at length at this point, we here at Breaking Points, with the help of our premium subscribers, commissioned a focus group of New Hampshire Republicans to offer their insights, how they're thinking about this primary, who they're interested in, who they're not interested in, what issues are the priorities, et cetera. And if you wanna help us do this sort of work in the future, and if you want to get the whole beautifully edited uh, piece of video and all the focus group details, First in your inbox, make sure you subscribe, breakingpoints.com. Without further ado, though, we want to bring in James Johnson of JL Partners, who was the moderator of this focus group, and by the way, did a fantastic job yes. getting a lot of very interesting information out of these voters. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah of course. So we want to show some of, the, some of the clips, but before we do, what were sort of your top line takeaways being there with this group the entire time? I think it's first worth saying who we actually selected. So we, mm -hmm. we went for likely New Hampshire primary voters, Almost all of them were registered Republicans, and there was one independent, because obviously, don't forget, independents can vote in the New Hampshire presidential primary, um, who, who intended to participate in the in the primary. And we got a mix of people, some who made up their minds, some who were undecided. So we really didn't know going into the room who they were going to say they were voting for. Mm. And as we'll see, um, it is still Trump's game to lose. Mm -hmm. um, that He dominates this, this focus group, even though... Uh, there is a split view on him. Some are sort of okay with him. Some love him. Some really don't like him. It's all about Trump. We asked them, you know, what are their most important issues? And we had the economy. We had reproductive rights and other issues. But really, when we got down to the nitty gritty, it was Trump that it was all about. One yeah. of the defining ones that you guys did was where you get your news from, which actually revealed uh, a lot about all of them. So we have that clip. Why don't we take a listen? Uh, I was saying to these guys, we did have a fight once in the UK. So, you know, you have to make sure that you beat the good people of Britain by not having a fight. First name, what you do for a living, where you get your news from. Okay, uh, James, I work in IT. 
and I get my news from podcasts or the internet, like a, a news site like a CNN or NBC. Yeah. Any particular podcasts? Uh, five five thirty eight podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Dana. I'm a full time homemaker, and I get my news from like a daily email briefing. Right. Which which one? The Morning Brew. Hi, my name is Neve. Um, I am a homemaker, homeschooler, and I get most of my news shared amongst um, other moms and folks in um, non-mainstream media type groups. Right. What kind of sort of group? Can you give an example of any of those? Um, like health freedom groups or folks who are um, more leaning, like opposing mainstream media. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm a business analyst, and I get my news from mostly the internet, um, different websites, um, NBC, CNBC, um, Fox News, and whatever the one that pops up on my computer that I don't even ask for. It shows me the headlines. Okay. <laughs> um, and also when I check my email, the headlines there. My name is Debbie, and I am a homemaker, part-time teacher. Um, and I get my news from my husband, <laughs> um, but I do watch um, Fox News and Tucker Carlson. Great, thanks so much, Debbie. Is that Tucker Carlson on on X now? Or? Yes. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Jim, I'm in advertising sales, and I get most of my news from either Glenn Beck, uh, Sean Hannity, and the two guys at noon on iHeartRadio. Hi, my name is John. I'm a retired uh, service technician, and uh, I get my uh, news from Newsmax. Hello, I'm Alexis. I'm an administrator for a state agency, and I get my news primarily from the internet, um, local TV stations, as well as national ones, primarily WMUR, as well as the local Concord Monitor and other local newspapers. So what did you make of that, James? Uh, what, what did where they got their news from eventually then inform some of their answers? Because before we preview what they actually say about who they're going to vote for. Well, I think what's yeah. very worth noting there is that there's a lot of sort of um, independent news sources, um, some alternative news sources, mm -hmm. and really what sort of fed through the entire focus group was a real skepticism about traditional news media. Yes. Mm. And they were skeptical about stories they'd heard. They talked about how they would go and Google stories, you know, after, after they'd seen them to check to fact check them and see that they're right. And it's worth saying that is something we see in all of our focus groups. Mm -hmm. There's a big move away from those traditional sources, including in the United Kingdom as well as in the US. So I think we see that informing a bit of that. And you saw the chap there mention Newsmax. You saw others mention other sources. They are coming at this from a very diffuse perspective, not just relying on one classic cable news network or one newspaper. Right. Absolutely. That was what jumped out at me was just how many different answers were given. I mean, no one gave the same yeah. answer. And Fox did not I, dominate That's at what all. I was going to say. Yeah. If you had asked this question of Republican primary voters a decade ago, I think almost all of them would have been like, yep. Fox News, 100%. but the, the landscape is so much more fractured now. Now, I will say if you're like, you can kind of very closely expect who's going to be where on the political yeah. spectrum and what things they're going to focus on based on the news preferences that they give at the top there, which is part of why we wanted to introduce them to the audience with that clip. Now, let's take a listen to um, another section where you ask them, who are they supporting and what are they thinking about the candidates? Let's take a listen to that. So write it down, the name of the person, the name of the candidate who you're currently supporting. I would say Trump. And the reason being is because I would look back at his presidential days and all that was accomplished and what America was like. 
And then I would fast forward to where America is now. And I wouldn't want to keep going that way. Trump, there we go. Yes, sorry. Yeah. And the reason being is um, his past accomplishments. We did it in you know, four, three and a half, four years. And he does support the, the, the working class a lot more, I think, than the other party does right now. And also what he's fighting now, what he's going through the political firestorm of all these uh, affidavits. As he said, I'm fighting for you because if this can happen to me, it will happen to you. If, you. if you say the wrong thing, you're in trouble today. Trump, definitely. Uh, because he needs to put us back where we were with oil independence, secured bo borders, great economy, uh, just looking out for us. Uh, he made the, gave a military a raise when they hadn't had one for uh, decades or years, I should say. And uh, he made the VA better than what it was. And uh, he's just, he needs to take over where he left off, which is making us where we were, especially with the oil independence. You're going to hate me, but I can't remember the guy's name from South Dakota. <laughs> I was looking into some of his ideas, and I... I think that we should still stay with a Republican, but not necessarily Trump. I'd like to see some little bit more of rational thinking come through. While I like how Trump had some ideas that were great and his financial abilities were leading us in the right direction, some of his changes that he put in while he was in term directly affected my work, and I didn't agree with some of them. Doug Burgum, is that who you were thinking yeah, of? That's um, great, okay. Uh, I, I'm currently undecided, but I would be leaning towards Governor DeSantis. And main reason why? Uh, just executive experience, all the things he's accomplished in a very purple state, can get things done. Had the largest victory in, in recent memory for Florida, even though it's a divided state, so you know he can get things done. And I just don't think he's quite as uh, divisive or antagonistic as uh, President Trump would be. I'm considering Vivek for my vote. Um, I think... He's sort of an outsider, and I don't think he has any political ties that are going to influence everything, I think. So I'm, that's what I'm considering right now. Leaning to Trump because um, he isn't a politician. He is a businessman, and his list of accomplishments uh, was tremendously good for our country. My main hang-up is that he pushed through the sort of COVID things, the shots and whatnot. I honestly don't know yet. I really don't. Um, I agree with the warp speed. Um, kind of did it for me, so I'm not 100% um, for Trump. But DeSantis, I see some good points, but I'm not really positive uh, yet. I haven't really made up my mind yet. Might be naive, but I was hoping for uh, somebody out of nowhere to come in. I want to pick up on, on why you're sort of leaning away from, from Trump. I think we'll have a much better shot of winning without Trump at the top of the ticket. I honestly think if Trump is on the top of the ticket, we're gonna lose all the state races in New Hampshire, because he's very unliked, uh, very unlikable. Um, I appreciate all the things he did when in office. I think he did do a good job, but he's not a likable person. He's not a great person. And I think it would be have a devastating effect on Republicans across the country to have him at the top of the ticket. I think we would feel that everywhere. Not worth it. What, what would be your defense in to, to well, that? Going with the vaccine, I too do not agree with the vaccine. I never got vaccinated myself. It's a free choice to do so. And I know Trump did say I would not force the vaccine anybody. I do believe that Trump was given some bad advice, particularly with Dr. Fossey, and I forget the other woman that was there. There's a lot of uh, manipulation going on that the media will not be truthful about, but that is a lot of what took place. And I think he got some bad advice. Well, there's many things that I agree with them on. I mean, the four years, there are some things like I think 
a lot of times he speaks without thinking, and I think that that's a detriment to himself. Um, but I do think that the media warps so much of what is truly going on, and I feel like that's a huge problem This um, in, in many areas, like with many of these candidates. I mean, it's hard to know the true person underneath them because it really, it depends. If you listen to CNN, it tells you one thing. If you listen to Fox News, it tells you a different thing. How can we make America great again? Because it's not great right now. It's not great. And I've got six kids and I'm watching them have to grow up in this. And that worries me about what they're going to have to live with if somebody doesn't start shaking the boots somewhere. He's a businessman and he has a lot of hard back on him. And that's why he says some of the things that he does, because he's just he's a businessman. But you know, he does right by the people. He could walk away anytime he wants with all his money. But he's still fighting to come back and say, I have to finish the job. I have to make us great again. When he put the tariffs on China, and was bringing jobs back doing the border. So uh, that's why I like the guy. And yes, he doesn't say a lot of presidential things that he should be saying, but he also says a lot of things that people are thinking, but they won't come right out and say it. So let's call it what it is. I've seen you shaking your head a couple of times. I'm baffled by these arguments. I mean, he got bad advice. You want a president who got bad advice? That's really a cop out. But I think mail-in ballots are here to stay, so they're here. So the media trumping up COVID and bringing COVID into the story, you think that helps President Biden to have a COVID outbreak on his watch? That definitely does not help him. So I think could Trump, could Trump beat him? Maybe. We all agree that Biden is totally incompetent, I think, uh, and, and Trump already lost to him. Now, maybe it was a rigged election, but it shouldn't have even been close, right? He's, Biden is totally incompetent. He shouldn't even win five states. So why don't we choose a candidate who doesn't come with all the baggage and all the issues and all the media hating him and all that? And let's get a fresh voice in there that can really whoever is the Republican nominee should wipe the floor with Biden, not be in a situation where a mail in ballot or a media thing could swing it. It shouldn't even be that close. You know, don't leave it to the refs. Right. So obviously these things aren't scientific, they're just a snapshot, but that being said, I feel like you got a lot of the like- That was everything. Yeah, that was a lot of what you see in some of the interpersonal dynamics and some of the things they like about Trump and some of the question marks they have. Also, love the lady who's the Doug Burgum supporter yes, who doesn't yeah, remember doesn't his have. name or what state he's from. And I mean, genuinely mean that. Like, I appreciate she's like, I researched and I liked yeah. his policy positions. But um, what did you make of that? Because it does seem like, even though there was some favorable sentiment towards DeSantis and even towards some of the other candidates, Trump is really still the central defining issue of this whole thing. He is, and this audience matches really what the New Hampshire polls look like, mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. half-backing Trump and the others sort of diffused across other candidates. Yeah, that's right. It felt like there were three key groups in this focus group that are in that New Hampshire electorate as a whole. One of the sort of Trump true believers, and you saw that with those three people at the back there, you know, yeah. they were, he, he had made a values connect with them. He was their guy, mm. he smashed it as the president in his view, in their view, and they really wanted to see him come back. Um, then we had the sort of Trump agnostics, those people in the middle ground. Um, you saw the lady in the front row there talking about, she liked him, she had a few concerns about COVID. They doubt Trump's effectiveness, but you can still see them backing hit them. You can still see them backing him come a general election. Yeah. And then you have that third group, really sort of uh, exemplified by James on the front row there, who we just saw. These people who are opposed to Trump, they think that he's not only lost his effectiveness, he's lost some of his sort of moral right to govern. And th those three groups are absolutely key to to sort of who can win because. 
Trump only needs to carry the first two of those groups, and he's got it. There you go. He doesn't even have to carry all of the first two of those groups. Absolutely. And so part of what, um, and I'd love to get more from you on, to me, while, yes, Trump is the dominant central figure, it did show if you did have one candidate that could consolidate the other two groups, they maybe would have a path. They maybe would have a shot. And there were some questions raised there that were, you know, part of the DeSantis pitch. We're going to talk more about COVID in a minute. But I was actually surprised how many people at this late date are bringing up COVID. Yeah. And as a core critique of Trump of like, well, I liked a lot of what he did, but what he did in the pandemic, I have some questions about that. I'm not sure about that. That's something that DeSantis has tried to run on. What did they think of some of the other the other candidates? Well, Ron DeSantis came out of this pretty well. Okay, they're not yeah. saying they'd vote for him, but when we asked them about what, what their views on him, they were uniformly favorable. Mm. Um, one of the Trump true believers at the back there said, why couldn't he run in four years' time? Mm. Um, and, others, and others were positive. These Trump attack lines on DeSantis haven't landed with Trump supporters. And also you see that with Tim Scott as well. There were positive things said about him. Nikki Haley was a little bit more divisive. Mike Pence a bit more divisive. Yeah. Coming up against that, coming up against those pro-Trump people, you yeah. know, rubbing up against them badly a little bit. But, you know, the DeSantis, the Tim Scotts, they are liked. The problem is, is as you say, there's no one name for them to rally around. Yeah. And as long as that field stays diffuse, it's exactly what happened in 2016. Trump won in New Hampshire in 2016 because he had a split field up against him. And we're headed towards the same thing. Well, yeah, the, the important I think it's thing, Doug Burgum's race to lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing to also see is that they disagree on where they uh, depart from Trump. So like James, mm. the IT guy, he's like, well, I think he was divisive. I think he got bad advice. But then Can't the other win. people are like, well, actually, I don't like the fact that he did Operation Warp Speed. You know, mm. it's like they have very differing views about how exactly that's going to go, which is why I don't think one person could unite. And let's turn then to COVID because COVID actually leaped out to us. It became really interesting. The mainstream media who we shared our focus group with, they actually picked up on this immediately, was a lot of the fears around return of COVID restrictions and of uh, impact on the election, mail-in balloting and all that. Let's take a listen to that and we're going to talk about it afterwards. The candidates have said it, have said, can, can Donald Trump beat Joe Biden? The problem is the fair election. So here we go again. We're starting the cranking up of the COVID, supposedly with the masking, and you know it's gonna—it's the same play they did it did four years ago. They're gonna play the uh, mail-in ballots, and the cheating's gonna take place, and you know it just—it's gonna be the same scenario again. Like I work in the schools, and a couple of the teachers were like, you know, already COVID's coming in. The masks. Some of the schools are already going online. Some of the things are getting. Some of the colleges are getting shut down. Like it's. It's like a deja vu, and then you think about it, okay, so then the mail-in ballots got to come. Like, do I think he can beat him? Absolutely, if it's fair. So you think that, that, that COVID stuff you think is linked to the election? Yes, absolutely. And who's, who's doing that? Who's orchestrating that? Huh. Go on, Jim. The Democratic Party. It, it, was, it was an article was written by, I forget what the news magazine was, but it was, a, it was a liberal news magazine, and they came out and basically said it was planned to have the election go the way it was, and allow... Republicans went along with that plan because they wanted to keep the swamp. They wanted to keep the, the the dirty politics, and some of the Republicans are involved with that. And they, it was a planned event, and they used COVID as a way to push it in. With the pandemic, we see it coming again, and there's a lot of writing on the wall. Um, I think there's a lot of money exchanged. There's big farmers behind it all. Um, as far as can Trump beat Biden, I think um, I could probably beat Biden at this point. Uh, the guy's stumbling around, forgets where he is, can't remember his words, doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and so I wonder, like, really, who's who's running? We put the name Biden on it, but who's really holding those puppet strings? Um, and can Trump 
win over those. Put your hands up if you think the 2020 election was rigged. I'm repeating what you guys have, some of you guys have said back to me here. Um, this idea that COVID is coming back up again. Put your hands up if you think that's a deliberate plan um, to try and basically stitch the next election up for the Democrats. It's all about fear. And that's what it is. It's all about fear. Scare everybody. Stay indoors. Wear your mask. COVID's coming back. I'm here to help. It's fear. It's control to divide people. Um, well, if you think that's the case, you know, I'll ask the question again. Um, you know, got at least four of you nodding there. You know, um, don't know about the exact semantics, but you know, repeating back what you said to me, you know, put your hands up if you do think that there's at least some connection between COVID coming back and the next election being rigged for the Democrats. So I clearly, it's not only about return of COVID restrictions. I've seen this too, um, in terms of uh, people, you know, like talking about stories. There's one college bringing back mask mandates. They're like, oh, well, that's going to justify, you know, this. Uh, I know Alex Jones and others have been talking about it. So clearly that is going through, you know, to a lot of the voters. But then you also saw the divide in terms of somebody like James, the person in our focus group who didn't raise his hand whenever he said the election was stolen. He was the only one who departed in the previous clip. He's like, why would that be good for President Biden? But there, I mean, the divide there seemed one of the starker ones. And one of the things that really jumped out that we didn't expect to see. Absolutely, and it's yeah. correlating with that yeah. sort of pro-Trump on the one hand, right. concerns about 2020 election, and these you know couple of people in the group who were resistant to those kind of things. But look, that was the majority view in that group, um, that, that COVID is linked to the next election uh, basically going the same way in their eyes as the previous one, mm -hmm. which they view as being rigged for Joe Biden. Now, this says to me that you know, if we fast forward to an election where Trump and Biden are the candidates, um, which obviously is not guaranteed, but let's assume that is the case, and we get a Biden win in that election, that is going to cause a lot of rancor and a big, you know, big pool of distrust yeah. amongst these voters. They, they're already been set up for it. Yeah. I mean, and I've seen these. I've just noticed this in the past few weeks. There were a couple little stories. There's like an elementary school near here that did masks for ten days or something, and these stories have been blowing up huge in right wing media. And you know, it's partly what those media outlets are choosing to coverage cover and it's also partly what these voters are primed yeah, it, to really I think it's believe what concerned about and yeah. so they you know they when they see that story it fits into their mental pattern of oh this is what happened last time is what's going to happen again you know i thought not only in terms of geez we saw what happened last time a majority of republicans thought the election was rigged it was catastrophe on january 6th and it was you know a genuine sort of threat to the the core of democracy here but if you have that happen again, obviously that's a scary scenario. The other thing that I thought about though is, doesn't this end up being sort of self-defeating for Trump? If your voters think it's gonna be rigged anyway, does it make it harder to motivate them to the polls? And we saw a little bit of this in the Georgia Senate races that happened, you know, came right on the heels of 2020. And you had some influencers, and I think the president's son, Don Jr., going down to Georgia and basically saying, like, it was rigged, it was stolen. And there was a lot of analysis at the time that this really demotivated people because what's the point of, you know, upending your day and doing some of the hurdles that it takes to show up at the polls if you don't think your vote is going to count Anyway, so to me, it's sort of a double-edged sword for them that they already have this idea baked in that the election is going to be rigged and their votes are going to be stolen. Uh, absolutely, and particularly when you think the Republicans do skew older and older people tend to use mail-in ballots more. Mm -hmm. um, so that is obviously a factor as well. What I would say is that local Republican parties, state parties, have been changing their message on mail-in ballots over right. the last year, since the midterms at least, yeah. saying, you know, we actually sign up, we need to do this, we need to play the Democrats at their own game. We expect that to have an impact. But what these focus groups tell us is they tell us not just what people are thinking in terms of their vote, 
whether they might vote. Mm -hmm. And this turnout question is going to be absolutely crucial at the 2024 election, because which side can get its people out is critical to the result. And we're going to see that with the election integrity argument, but we're also going to see it on abortion and reproductive rights. Democrats will be hoping to put uh, abortion uh, um, uh, plebiscites on the ballot in, yeah. in various states to try and boost their turnout overall. So these focus groups also give us an insight into that, what's driving them are they actually going to turn out? What's their enthusiasm like? Very true. Yeah, and uh, to, to turn now to more of what these uh, individuals thought about some of the other candidates, I mentioned before, I was surprised how much the pandemic came up um, in the context both of, you know, the election being rigged again and also in the context of some of the critique of Trump. And, um, you know, this is one of the things that Ron DeSantis had been leaning into. I actually haven't been hearing him making this mm -hmm. case as much, but this raises for me perhaps <laughs> perhaps Maybe he was he on to something yeah. with that original uh with that original critique and contrast that he was making with Donald Trump you did something really interesting which was you you know asked them all to to write down what they thought about each of the candidates let's take a listen to some of what they had to say if you don't know who this person is I think you might have been living under a rock Donald Trump a word or a phrase to sum up how you feel I don't mean it rudely, but my word is loser. I'm confused. He's not confused. I'm confused about how I feel. Uh, competent? Competent, but I don't necessarily trust him. Competent. Unwavering. Making America great again. Unhinged. Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, refreshing ideas, but not serious. Optimistic. Suspiciously fake. I don't know enough. Uh, VP for Trump. He's well-spoken, but I don't trust him. Uh, he took money from Soros and denied it. And so uh, I don't he's, I don't trust him. He looks like a and he acts like a clear politician, but he has no shot at being a president. Nikki Haley, strong on foreign policy. Consensus builder. I'm afraid I'm completely uninformed. I don't know who she is. Kind of naive. I have to hear more about her, but mm, she's very liberal. Liberal leaning on social issues. Rhino. She seems confident, but I feel like she's not strong enough to be our president. Mike Pence. Uh, experienced, has a good temperament for the job. More of the same. Not necessarily a bad person, but not necessarily anything to offer. A sellout. Confident. Kind of likes to try to please everybody. And that can be an issue sometimes. Rhino. Ultra, ultra conservative. Next one, guys. Tim Scott, word or phrase, Tim Scott. I like him, but when I see him speak, it just seems unremarkable. Like, doesn't doesn't set himself apart. He strikes as honorable. I want to say too new, but I don't, that's not quite what I want to say, but I can't think of any other words. I'd say he needs more experience. He's well-spoken. He'd make a great VP for uh, Trump. I think he's too strict on reproductive rights. Chris Christie. Tells it like it is. No way. Yeah, Frank. I think he's a phony. Outspoken. More liberal. Rhino, if he didn't have Trump's name to mention, he wouldn't go anywhere. Let's not forget Bridgegate. Seems like he's too indated with the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Ron DeSantis. It's a strong record of getting things accomplished. Experience. Morally solid. He's got a lot going for him. My word was experienced. Could you wait four more years? <laughs> he's well-spoken. Uh, I think he's hurt Flavor in a lot of ways, too, but uh, he's well-spoken, and uh, he's a takes-charge guy. He certainly can talk very well, but he's done some bad things for Florida that has directly hurt, you know, the elderly as well as some of the families down there.
There's so much to dig into there. Um, Let's actually talk first about Trump, who, of course, is, you know, the elephant in literally every room in this entire country, I feel. The critique of him was lacking in competence, but then there was obviously a lot of strong sentiment in favor of him as well. There was, and people who liked him did pick up on the fact that, okay, he might not always be the most presidential. Uh, He might say things that perhaps Mm -hmm. uh, he shouldn't, or he might come out and tweet things or whatever else. Um, But that was funny to them. They like that. You know, this yeah. is not going to be the thing yeah. that ruins Trump with them. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I thought that those three at the back were locked in for Trump. They're going to vote for him at the primary. Definitely it's very hard to talk like them it. away. It's those people in the middle that are, that are, that are the key, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, it was interesting, too, uh, to see them on Nikki Haley, that one woman, she was like, I don't even know who she is. I'm totally <laughs> Yeah, and I think yeah. It's, it's worth saying, I think, that, you know, no yeah. candidate here has not only had not had a breakthrough moment, but also no one's had a New Hampshire moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one was sort of saying, oh, they've turned up to a lot of events. Oh, that's true. They've done a lot. And, you know, that's bad news for candidates like Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, who've spent a lot of time in New that's Hampshire. Really they weren't they weren't yeah. noticing that. I, I think, actually, the comments about Vivek were some of the most critical. You had some people who said, you know, I like him. Uh, he seems he seems pretty good. <laughs> but then they would float, like, maybe he could be Trump's vice president. Yeah. Um, but the, some of the negative critiques of him were also interesting they came they found him they they found he came across politiciany and mm. also like they didn't trust him there was some skepticism of him that clearly existed in this group even among people that you know that you might think had a favorable impression of him yeah and it seems that Vivek Ramaswamy you know we we did a poll uh, after the first debate which I believe breaking points covered mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy came top on top on that poll but he does not seem to have converted that debate performance into sort of solid support we've mm-hmm. seen that in the polls he had a boost before the debate but he hasn't really had a boost in the numbers since the debate. And it seems like, actually, his manner and his style on that debate, even though people like what he was saying, seems to have rubbed off a bit negatively on some of these people. Now, big caveat, it's only one focus group. You know, there's lots of time to go. But certainly this is not someone who, you know, got a clean sweep and got a lot of momentum from that debate, as perhaps some were predicting he might. There were two people who got less negative uh, comments than what I was actually expecting, and that was Mike Pence and uh, Chris Christie. Chris Christie, even some of the people who were like, you know, sort of Trump curious or Trump supporters were described him as like, he tells it like it is, you know, he's Frank. I mean, there was also, he's a rhino. There was that sentiment there mm-hmm. as well. But I actually expected basically everyone in the group to be like, yeah, he's a rhino and I don't right. like him. But there was this sense of like, oh, he's brash. He tells it like it is. There was more of that in the group than I expected. The other one was, uh, as I mentioned, Mike Pence, where because there's been obviously January 6th, you had people running around saying they wanted to hang him. He has now at this point become more outspoken about Trump and about Trump's governance and, you know, just gave this big speech really contrasting his vision with Trump's vision, et cetera, et cetera. I thought there would be more negative uh, sentiment towards him. And again, there was some of that. You know, he was described as a sellout. Um, the the one gentleman who's clearly like very strong Trump supporter called a lot of these folks rhinos, but Mike Pence was one of the ones yeah. who got the rhino label. But you also heard people saying, oh, he's experienced. You know, they, they felt like he was a good person. They just disagreed with some of the values and some of the direction that he wanted to go in. So I was, I was actually surprised it wasn't more sort of vicious and negative on Mike Pence. This is the perennial burden of doing these focus groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's saying never... I'd never overestimate how clued in people are. Yeah. Because, you know, people are not following the contours of this like we do. You know, they're not yeah. following the ups and downs of the race. And to some people, they see Mike Pence at that debate and they think, oh, he came across quite strongly, mm-hmm. he came across quite principled. And they quite like that. 
it's come off a little bit in the numbers now, but in some of the early primary polls of this of this cycle, we saw quite a large chunk of Trump voters were saying that Mike Pence was their second choice. Yeah. And that still exists. He was a vice too. president. It makes Absolutely. sense. Yeah. I think it makes sense. Yeah. And then the, the last one uh, for you to weigh in on is actually two of them. So uh, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis, people didn't have really strong views on Tim Scott. There was a sense, again, of sort of like, yeah, he's fine, but maybe he needs some experience. He seems honorable, but I'm not sure. Ron DeSantis actually had a pretty positive reception. You know, the, the one gentleman who was very hard Trump and called almost everybody else a rhino, he didn't say that about Ron DeSantis, even though Trump has been obviously aggressively going against Ron DeSanctimonious, Meatball Ron, whatever the latest nickname of the day is. He said that he sees him as well-spoken and kind of a take-charge guy. Um, and so across this group, uh, with the exception of the, the one woman who's the, the Doug Burgum supporter, there seemed to be pretty positive sentiments towards him, presenting possibly an opportunity. I mean, if he were to consolidate some of that and consolidate the people who are like, eh, I'm not sure about Trump, consolidate some of the people who are definitely anti-Trump, then he would have a shot. I think as Sagar was pointing out before, the challenge in doing that is that people's reasons why they don't want Trump again are so different and so various that it makes it really hard to have one cohesive message that would bring all of those individuals together. It, it does. And I think Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott would now be thinking we need to have a moment. Um, it's yeah. not good yeah. enough for Tim Scott to have a solid debate. It's not good enough for Ron DeSantis to have a solid debate. They need to start really carving them out as the clear um, opponents and challengers. And they need to do that quite quickly. Now, look, there is time, but look at what happened in 2016. You know, you have uh, Iowa, you have New Hampshire, you have South Carolina, and then it's not long until you're into Super Tuesday. Now, if there's still a fractured field by then, Trump mops up. Mm -hmm. he, he gets it. But, I mean, if I was advising, you know, one of these candidates, whether it was Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis, you know, how do you break through? Well, clearly they need to have a big sort of presence on the debate stage. But it might also be worth thinking for them, what's the sort of policy issue that they can really make a splash with? Yeah. And one of the things that really united this group, quite different perhaps from sort of what we might expect Trump supporters to be like, is that they were very, very keen to see the federal government become a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. um, they were keen to see spending cut. They were keen to see the government step back from their, li from their lives. Now, if DeSantis or Tim Scott could come up with a really punchy economic policy, don't quite know what that is. Perhaps it's a flat rate tax. Perhaps it's something yeah. that really appeals to those sort of small state Republicans then you could see them start to break through a little it bit. It really makes sense in the live for your dire state. I'm curious about how it would look like, you know, on a national level. Mm. I think one of the, my takeaways was with DeSantis is the COVID critique, for some reason, he has that critique of Trump from the very beginning, criticized warp speed, criticized him on Fauci, but not a single one of those people was like, yeah, but that's why I'm supporting DeSantis. The one DeSantis guy didn't point. even cite COVID. Mm. The other people were not used, they were like, yeah, I kind of agree with the critique, but they're not immediately saying his name. And if he hasn't won him over at this point, I'm like, man, that's kind of, I, I, I'm just curious, you know, what could possibly, we had those two undecided ladies, both of whom were very concerned about COVID, but none of them, so they're like, yeah, I'm considering, you know, but he, he still has not been able to win that over. So I, I actually, a bit of a red flag, you know, he, he needs to consolidate that if to the extent that that's a large group in there. But I, I'm just not sure, given the amount of the disparate kind of concerns about Trump are just so all over the map from right to left. I don't know if a single candidate yeah. can do that. Uh, maybe the big yeah. moment comes if Trump attends one of the debates. Right, yeah, If somebody right. can pit themselves yeah. as the sort of anti-Trump candidate, but who also appeals to that key group in the middle. And I think, you know, to listeners, I think I'd say the key thing to take away from this focus group is that group in the middle, these Trump agnostics. Mm -hmm. You saw a couple of them there. If they can be one round, yeah. then it's possible that Trump's lead could fray. But look, there's no doubt, based yeah. on this, 
Trump is the clear front. Yeah, runner. very true. The the last thing I'll say, we're going to have guys um, some of the more issue specific questions and some of the clips from that, you know, on abortion and Ukraine and other things later in the week. So we're going to have some of that as well, just as a, a preview. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we've got a lot more. Yeah. Don't worry. Um, but you know, I was curious from your perspective because you're saying you know they're interested in smaller government, they're interested in you know the pandemic, they have these things that they raise. But when they're actually talking about the candidates and how they feel about them and why they're supporting them, it's very little that's issue specific. It's much more seems to be about personal characteristics. Mm -hmm. So what was your sense in the room of how much these do? Is it the vibes? Is it the like, you know, the personality contest? Or do you think it comes down more to like, here's my top issues, here's how I'm uh, prioritizing them? I think come a general election, that matters a little bit more. And I could certainly, it was interesting when they were talking about things like the economy and abortion, they were talking about it not in reference to different Republican Candidate. candidates, yeah. but mm. to against Joe Biden. Correct. So I, yeah, do th I, I do think that matters later. But at this stage, I think one of the problems is um, for anyone trying to differentiate on this, we've seen, you know, Nikki Haley, for example, take a different position on Social Security. We've seen Mike Pence take a different yep. position on abortion. The problem of that sort of approach is that these voters sort of assume most Republican candidates are probably on the same side on these issues. Mm -hmm. They sort of instinctively trust a lot of them to be so. Um, and that make, makes it hard to differentiate. So I think it is personality. Um, us pollsters call it brand. You know, mm. it's the brand of these candidates. You know, in the same way you might go to your favorite, you know, chocolate bar provider or your favorite, you know, uh, telecoms provider. Um, uh, it's the candidate and how they come across. Are they competent? Are they good? Are they reliable? Are they strong? Will they stand up for you? Yeah. And that is, policy matters as a flag for that, but it's also so much more about can they convince the room? Yep. Yeah. Can they persuade them? It's personal characteristic and great point too about how it matters also in terms of how they see the other candidate and whether they'll get some of what they want, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Joe Biden. So anyway, James, uh, you did a fantastic job. You really did. Uh, hopefully we'll see you again. Uh, great work here and we're excited to continue to bring everybody um, all of this uh, work that we've done in conjunction with JL Partners. Uh, you guys do amazing work, as we said. We've cited previous polls and other things and yeah, we're know. glad we got to work together. I don't know if people remember, we, we yeah. showed before these word clouds that you guys yeah, of all the candidates, yeah. which were, re I mean, they were really interesting because, again, it's like you can pull on these issues and people, oh, I support this on Ukraine, I support that on abortion, but like their gut check of when I hear this candidate's name, what's the first thing that comes to mind? That's in some ways the most revealing material, so that's right. why we we're so excited to work yeah. with you guys and you came through. This was phenomenal. Thank, Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate yeah, it very much. Pleasure. And we will continue on with the rest of the show now. Last week, we brought you the news that President Zelensky had fired the defense minister over corruption. We're apparently allowed to talk about corruption in Ukraine now. And the New York Times, because they've gotten their marching orders now that they're allowed to talk about it, are giving us an even better insight into what this looks like. It's effectively like the plot of the War Dogs movie or of Lord of War. Crazy mercenaries who are very unscrupulous are getting hundreds of millions of dollars from the U.S. government on their ability to procure weapons and pump them into the Ukraine conflict. Let's put this up there on the screen. Just This is just one view. Remember, this is just one, uh, what, 20-something months or so into the conflict. They look at Florida-based arms contractor. His name is Mark Morales. He has regaled people with stories on his new $10 million yacht called Trigger Happy Crystal that manages his company's nine-digit portfolio. Said portfolio includes like hundreds of millions of dollars that are given to Mr. Morales. They have awarded his company pro 
approximately $1 billion in contracts, mostly for ammunition. Records show he has built roughly $200 million side business just selling to the Ukrainians directly. He employs multiple Ukrainian officials, some of whom are pictured there, one of them literally a former defense ministry advisor. I mean, why would you employ such a person, right, whenever you're trying to sell uh, weapons to the government? But the thing I love about Mr. Morales is that Quote, the Justice Department indicted him in 2009 on conspiracy of money laundering charges after it said he was caught on tape discussing methods for paying bribes to foreign officials. Quote, this is what he said, you just got to be smarter than the government, Mr. Morales said on one recording. Ultimately, FBI agents badly botched the case and prosecutors had to drop charges. So he's not been convicted. He stands uh, innocent of the charges in the eyes of the law. But what they really go into with Mr. Morales, and again, we're using him just as a stand-in for how many, there's probably dozens of these yeah. types of guys who are operating inside of Ukraine, is these guys were instrumental in the Syria and Afghan conflict. Yep. They have a deep and shady ties for ammo, ammo, ammo dealers all across the world. They can snap their fingers and they can get a plane full of ammunition. And the Pentagon was like, hey, the guy can get the job done. So we're just going to pump money you know, into his pockets. And it doesn't really matter uh, where it's coming from or what's going on or where this money is doing or who exactly he's paying inside of the country. And it's just so obvious. I mean, one of the reasons they tried to indict him in 2009 is because that directly violates the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act that the United States government has in place in which U.S. businesses are not supposed to be bribing foreign officials or engage in any of this corruption to procure business. And that specifically would be a, a violation, a business violation in terms of that revenue. But when that revenue is directly based on the government itself, they're obviously looking the other way. So I thought this was just a perfect example of, you know, now it's 20-something months into the conflict. The Biden administration is on the verge of sending long-range missiles to Ukraine, of which they directly had said before it would escalate the conflict. And we don't have enough said missiles because if we ever get into a conflict, we may need them. Of course, on a, I've said this before on a long enough timeline, Ukraine always get what it wants. But, you know, it's people like Mr. Morales who are the go-tos between these. It's not just a direct arms transfer. It's we take the money, we give it to people like him. He gets it from God knows where. And then he gives it to Ukraine and he's making a very tidy little profit enough to get oh. a $10 million yacht in uh, in Florida. Must be nice. It's yeah. a nice life he's got down there. He's gotten a billion dollars in right. contracts from the Pentagon. I think this story, first of all, some of the details here, there are so many yikesy mm -hmm. details in this, starting with, you know, the image of him on his quote-unquote trigger-happy <laughs> yacht and um, partying with these uh, Ukrainian officials and uh, current members of the Ukrainian military that he also employs in order to help him get the meetings with the Ukrainian government that he wants to secure further contracts. So he's not only doing business with the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon is hiring him to uh, procure and supply certain weapons and uh, in particular ammunition, but he's also getting money directly from the Ukrainian government. He is walking right up to the line of directly bribing foreign officials. Yeah. I mean, there's just no other way of describing this. Um, one of the people that he employs is um, a sergeant in the Ukrainian military. He has done a lot to, so he pays this man, and then this man gets him these meetings with foreign government officials. So you tell me what that is, ultimately. <laughs> um, I think it's also important, outside of the details of this particular individual, that people really understand the nitty gritty of how this business is done mm -hmm. and that they remember that this man is becoming wildly wealthy off of this horrible, tragic war. 
and he's not alone. There are a lot of others who are just like him. Um, the article sort of gestures at this massive arms market that has sprung up and the amount of money obviously flowing um, around all of Eastern Europe. And they say that it could reshape the politics in and markets in that whole region for years and years to come, even following uh, after the war, because this is defining sort of a new group of oligarchs who are getting wildly wealthy off of this conflict. So it's always important to remember, as these wars are going on, you know, we as the public see it and we see the tragedy of it. We see the, the atrocities that are being committed. We see the absolute carnage and horror of it. But it's also important to remember that there are people who have a financial incentive to keep these things going and who are turning huge profits off of this carnage and killing. My personal favorite is that it's really not his connections to the Ukrainian government. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry in Eastern Europe's got a connection to the corrupt Ukrainian government. He says, quote, it is not his ties to the government, uh, that is, it's his ties to the Pentagon, which give him an unfair advantage. Quote, arms brokers from around the world are competing for limited supply of Soviet-style weapons, mostly from Eastern Europe, to sell to Ukraine. With cash pouring in from Washington, Morales can afford to pay more than his competitors do. Several Eastern European arms dealers complained. They're mad. They're not getting in on the bonanza. He then makes good on his American contracts, then buys even more ammunition with his profits to sell it to Ukraine directly. And in several cases early in the war, Morales outbid rivals to buy explosive shells, for example, from a Bulgarian arms factory. All of this is, again, appropriated dollars from the U.S. taxpayer to uh, missed people like him who go out and, you know, th these shady uh, factories, nobody knows what's going on in these places. They probably are most likely they're selling to both sides of the conflict. And this is a perfect example of a guy who's got Washington wired, knows how to game the subcontracting business and contracting, enough of a profit there if he can outbid people in there and then, you know, juice things with the Ukrainian government so he's got a consistent supply. And the longer this conflict goes on, the richer people like him are going to get. And what we, I want to be clear, this isn't even signaling the man out because there are dozens of people like him. And he, frankly, he's a small fish in all of this. The people who are really cleaning up are, like I said, that Bulgarian arms factory, our defense contractors who are also, yeah, uh, you know, they, they're, those are the people making billions of dollars whenever they are raking that in. He's just like a side player in this entire thing. One of the, again, I shouted out the movie War Dogs. I recommend people go and watch it because that is a great example of our government is not, in control nearly as much as people think. They think we're like flying C-37s over and just dropping the weapons off. No, 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 you know, we the government doesn't do anything anymore. We subcontract out everything, mm -hmm. like NASA to SpaceX and you know the Pentagon here to arms dealers. We just yep, write true. a check and then we just expect said weapons to show up. And the biggest problem with this is not only quality control, but also, who knows? Who's, where are these weapons going? We've already done uh, multiple reports here. Guys in the Azov, Nazi battalion, brand new weapons just showing up. We did previously that story about the American mercenary who had told stories about how just brand new crates of weapons just show up. Yeah. If you're there, grab one, why not? You know, and who knows, what are they dealing with it? And then also, how who is stopping? people like Morales or any of these people inside Ukraine from taking that crate, maybe they gave a third to the Ukrainians and they sell two thirds on the black market. That's exactly what happened in Afghanistan. I mean, I've said this before, but the people who really you know, won in Afghanistan, bankers in Dubai, and this is a, a good example. Guys like him made their bones in the Syria and Afghan conflict, being able to procure sketchy weapons and deliver it to the conflict zone. So why not? You know, And the amount of money laundering and other you know, chicanery that's going on behind the 
the scenes is just outrageous when you see something like this. Your subcontracting point is actually really mm. interesting and important because what happens, whether it's the government using subcontractors or you see this like in the auto industry or any other industry when they use subcontractors, they allow that to act as an excuse to not worry too much about the yes, messy details exactly. about how whatever they need is getting done. And so it makes it much more difficult to have any sort of transparency, accountability, the sort of thing that you would really want inside of a democracy when it comes to the core issues of war and peace. And by subcontracting, not just in the area of uh, defense spending, but really across all of government, by subcontracting so many key functions out and you know depleting the ability of our government to actually do anything itself, yeah, it allows a lot of things to be swept under the rug. It allows people to look in the other direction and empower individuals like this one who was formerly indicted for, you know, some sketchy circumstances. Yeah. Again, he's yeah. not he's found guilty, so yeah. he's innocent, but, you know, raises some question marks. Yeah. Anyway, allows our government to work with people like this and not look too closely at exactly what the details are, exactly what's going on. Exactly right. And guess what? The rest of the, rest of the world, they're waking up. They have a very different view of this conflict. That was especially in the uh, in the air at the G20 summit, which just happened in New Delhi, where it stunningly, if you don't pay attention to the news, put this up there on the screen. The language that previously had dropped a condemnation of Russian aggression against Ukraine was actually did not did not appear in the joint communique that was released by the entire G20. They say, quote, G20 leaders have failed to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine in their joint statement after both China and Russia, of course, rejected language that blamed Moscow for the conflict. But it really wasn't just them. The New Delhi actually summit declaration only referred to, quote, the war in Ukraine after a formulation of supporters in Kyiv and then also people who have a very different view of the conflict could not come to some sort of consensus about how things were uh, going to refer to the conflict. The previous G20 actually did refer to, quote, aggression by the Russian Federation against Ukraine, where Western diplomats and also Chinese officials did not put into the same place the blocks to stop that language from appearing, which shows you Clearly, things have changed in the geopolitical situation where they have enough juice, not just China and Russia, but places like India, Brazil, and others that have a very different view of said conflict. They even have the external minister of affairs of India. He said, quote, it is a fact today. It is a very polarizing issue. There are multiple views of this. There are a spectrum of views. So I think, in all fairness, it was only right to record what was the reality in the meeting rooms. The big takeaway uh, mine from the G20 summit, Crystal, was just mm. how far the U.S. and Europe are moving away from the consensus of the rest of the world. Because you had big landmark meetings between Modi and MBS. You had me meetings with the Chinese and the Russian officials. Uh, Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, actually met with Prime Minister Modi uh, on the sidelines, and they were it was pumped up by the Indian government because they rely on them, of course, for a portion of their oil supply. But also. President Lula of Brazil pr appeared prominently in a photo, not only with Prime Minister Modi and with President Biden, but came out directly afterwards and he said, hey, I'm hosting the G20 next year, and Putin, if you want to come, we're not going to arrest you as a part of the international, whatever, criminal court mm -hmm. tribunal. I mean, that these are not things that you do whenever you're afraid of the West, afraid of Europe, or um, in terms of their view on Russia and Ukraine. It's what you do when you have a completely different view. You're looking out for your own interests, and you think that the uh, war in Ukraine, while you think it's important, you think it's unjust, you know, what's happening there, you're like, okay, it's not the primacy of how I'm going to base my entire foreign policy. So Washington's decision to make 
everything about Ukraine, every single thing that we do, you know, alienating so many of our allies. The G20 to me is a much better view of how this is going as opposed to the G7 because the G20 is the actual emerging economies all across Asia. And it's also no surprise that President Biden right now is in Hanoi and Vietnam because he needs to shore up what's going on with our Asian alliance. And Vietnam is our number 10 trading partner. Like reality is beginning to hit us in terms of our obsession with this conflict. It's yeah. accelerated the realization of a multipolar world that, you know, we were already heading towards, but this has helped to consolidate that new reality. And you can see it when a country like Brazil is like, no, we're not going to go along at all with right. what you think, with what you say. We're not going to be ugly or mean about it. But we have a different view of this, and we feel very comfortable asserting it and looking out for our own interest in this conflict. Same thing with India. You know, it's interesting, the news coverage of the G20, because this is a sort of understandable, given that the language last time around was a little bit stronger and, you know, they weren't able to condemn Russian aggression, which, you know, I think that they should be able to do. But... There was a lot of shock that that was the case. And if anything, I'm actually surprised they were able to issue any sort of joint yeah, communique right. because <laughs> of the size of the divisions at this point. Yeah. And, you know, it was a big win uh, for Modi, who's facing re-election, to be able to get any sort of joint statement out. Uh, from the U.S.'s side, you had Jake Sullivan, U.S. National Security Advisor, calling it a set of consequential paragraphs. They're talking about, listen, you had to compromise some if you were going to get anything done, some of their priorities in terms of getting uh, grain exports restarted in the Black Sea. That was discussed, and uh, you know, commitment to that was realized within this uh, communique, which is, I think, really important, not just for Ukrainians, but for people around the world in terms of food prices. There was another piece here that, you know, there was a— uh, an effort to highlight climate change and to call for a reduction in fossil fuels, but there was also no deadline there. Yeah. So it's just sort of like that meaningless words on that one. Saudi yeah. Arabia, obviously, <laughs> not going to go along with that one either. So while there, while the uh, some of the things that were not in the communique really underscore the deep divisions at this point within the G20 and between the U.S. and Europe and the rest of the world in general, like I said, I'm actually surprised they were able to put anything out jointly at this point. Another important point from the G20, uh, Prime Minister Modi making a big show of uh, inviting the African Union directly as a member of the G20. That's again, you know, acceleration. The African Union, very, very different uh, view of the conflict in Ukraine than anything else going on in the West. They have much deeper ties with China. You know, I just want to emphasize what you said. We're seeing a huge bifurcation with the rest of the world and us. Now, that doesn't mean the rest of the world agrees with each other. India and China have all sorts of rivalry. Mm -hmm. Actually, there was a lot of questions about Xi Jinping and China ahead of this because of a map that the Chinese government put out, which shows a border dispute. But overall, I want to, you know, just to underscore what you said, which is I actually thought there was criminal undercoverage of what was going on in the G20, just because what was going on there and with the BRICS, you know, that is clearly going to define a huge portion of geopolitical, just of geopolitical, not only tension, but division and uh, evolution in the next century, as opposed to the amount of slobbering coverage that Western-based ones like G7 and others get. Mm -hmm. Our future is in Asia. I mean, there, like I I said, anyone who can read an actual table can see where our major trading partners are, where 50% of the world's GDP is. And to see the divisions also between the, you know, the Japanese and the South Koreans coming together at their recent Camp David summit, as opposed to how much attention the administration pays to Ukraine, 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 you think it's the most important thing going on in the world. I thought it was a very interesting uh, you know, thing that this even happened. And to see that, again, going to Brazil and Vladimir Putin will be showing up, most likely, and facing some of his biggest critics on the world stage in a year from now. What a crazy development. I mean, think about that. President Biden will be running for re-election a year from now. 
I guess if he's around, and he's gonna see, see Putin face to face, which that's what led to that famous moment. I think it was at the G8, or maybe it would have been the G20 when Obama and Putin had the sideline conversation. Oh, yeah. So you never know uh, how these things are gonna go. It's gonna be interesting. Yeah, indeed. We got some big domestic news that we're going to yes. be excited about here. Yeah, we have, you know, it's just one of those where I, in a major failure for small D democracy, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, representative of California of San Francisco, has decided she will be running for re-election. The fact that she's running for re-election at all is stunning. She's 83 years old, but the reasons for why she's running for re-election are very telling in what she's chosen to emphasize. Let's take a listen. Decided now that uh, in light of the values of San Francisco, which we have always been proud to promote, that she may, I made the decision to seek re-election. I think it's important for me to use my knowledge of the Congress, my knowledge of the city, my concern about the country for the benefit of my constituents. So it was really more responsi uh, about responsibility. Did you ever think about not running? Well, as you always do. I mean, for 36 years, I've thought about not running. <laughs> you always have to measure uh, what the value is of your contribution in something like this. And I never thought I'd stay as long as I did. I never thought I'd stay as long as I did, but I'm staying anyways. Uh, let's go to put this up there. Nancy Pelosi decides that she will be running for re-election in 2024, dismissing talk of retirement at age 83. I mean, this is just someone who is power hungry. And I think their entire identity is wrapped up in their holding office. And at this point, you know, even though she's not the speaker, she's like still the de facto leader of the Democratic Party. She doesn't want to give it up, Crystal. And, you know, after the coup that she's pulled off by keeping Feinstein in office, rigging the California Democratic primary process so that she'll never face an opponent, opponent so that her chosen Adam Schiff will very likely be able to get the, or at least contest the nomination. Why should she? I mean, she's one of those who's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And she's impervious to criticism about the stock trading. She's impervious to criticism about her age. She pulls the feminism card anytime you even try and talk about it as if it's a feminist issue that people are way too old in Congress. I mean, we should just should not dismiss the idea that it's disgraceful, that people who are this old continue to just hold on to power and not allow any new generation in. My personal favorite was a clip where she was defending like the state of San Francisco. Someone was like, hey, how's San Francisco done under? She's like, you're running for San Francisco. San Francisco's not doing very well right now. She's like, no, that's an isolated local issue. It's like, well, why are you doing anything about it then? Yeah. That's your whole ostensible reason for running. So she mentions Trump, she dismisses talk, and she says San Francisco is fine. It's ridiculous. I feel like these yeah. people feel like they're so core to yeah, like, they that they just, I don't know, they just can't give it up. You know, it's become so central to their own personal identity. They love the power. They love, like, the, the spectacle and the yes men and women around them. And they just never let go of their grip, grasping grip on whatever power they have. And, you know, this is consequential. Obviously, it's consequential for people who live in her district. But obviously, Nancy Pelosi is much more than just one member of Congress representing one district. She is a national figure. And as long as she remains in Congress, and probably even if she did retire, you can be assured that as much as Hakeem Jeffries' name may be at the front of the caucus, it's you her. know who's really running the show there. And so... Um, 
I just think it continues to point to an extraordinary failure at the core of our democracy that these people feel like they can hang on forever and ever, well into their 80s, with Dianne Feinstein, my God, into her 90s, and um, never face real accountability and never be even pushed aside for a, a new generation, hopefully, that's not just a repeat of the old generation that maybe has some different ideas and perspectives to offer, or at least open it up to a real democratic process. So I just think it's a sign of more core rot at uh, and at how unrepresentative our so-called democracy has truly become. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the things that she continues to say is she even used the Trump boogeyman in one interview that she gave. She was like, well, if Trump comes back, like, we're going to need somebody to stand up to him. It's like, well, what are you going to do? How like, did, how's yeah. that gone? I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, how did it go for you? What makes you think that you did such an effective job at that? The man almost won last yeah, time around. It's only because of his own absolute insanity and stupidity that he didn't. He's tied with Biden right now while he's facing freaking 91 different charges. And so you're really the bulwark against Trump and the fascists? Like, give me a freaking break. Where is any evidence that any of the approach you have taken to this man has been successful whatsoever? And, you know, the thing is, is that he, the, this fake turnover leadership, I think, is even worse almost than an outright mm. retirement, as you were talking about with yeah. uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Because, I mean, even Steny, Ho Steny Hoyer is like 84 years old. He's the same age um, as her, so, yeah. yeah. Same age. Um, Jim Clyburn, I know, is also getting up there. Everyone is uh, allegedly stepping down from their leadership roles, but they're not retiring. And it's like when you don't retire, then clearly, like, you're still running the show behind the scenes. And to see this running for re-election to remain the main face of the party. She's still the number one fundraising draw, which is insane to me, but shows you a lot about Democratic donors. Uh, and to still be like, pulling strings behind the scenes with Feinstein. You know, we can't emphasize enough just how much of a failure it really is. And also the inability to pass the torch and just let, let it, you know, who knows how it'll play out. They came from the generation, all of these people, from when actually there was a huge injection of new blood in the yeah, Democratic that's Party. True. They were called the Watergate babies. Yep. Um, a lot of people were swept into the office with the disgust of the Republican Party and uh, institutional decline after Watergate. And it's just funny because they've effectively created their own type of situation where their inability to let go of power has led to the same sort of cynicism which propelled them to office in the first place. But they never wanted to learn that lesson. They just keep droning on and on. I was talking with someone recently, and I think what they said is like, look, Congress is a Great place to be old. You have a mandatory staff. You get free flights, you know, all around the country, no matter where you want to go. Everyone opens a door for you. You only work three days a week. You don't have to work that hard if you don't want to. Yep. Uh, people call. Everyone has to call you ma'am or sir. You'll always get, you know, priority boarding on an aircraft. You'll always get a dinner reservation. You get free booze. You get free uh, free dinners. What's not to love? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a it's effectively a, a great retirement home, except we all pay for it. And they're supposed to be working for us. Yeah. That's the crazy part. Yeah, I looked it up. You're yeah. right. Hoyer's 84. Yeah. Clyburn's 83. Pelosi's 83. This is nuts. Completely. And the president's 81. He's a spring chicken. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's a great point. Um, this came up a lot in the focus group, and we're going to show you some of this. Um, but they were very concerned about, and they brought up McConnell, and they brought up Feinstein. Of course, they brought up Biden. But they see this also on the, you know, this is a, a group of Republicans in New Hampshire. They saw this also as a really core issue. Now, it was interesting because they differed on how you deal with it. Yeah, yeah. There was some, some people were like, I definitely want term limits or I definitely want age limits. Some people were like, ah, I don't know about that. Maybe we should have a cognitive like ability test. So there was a lot of ideas about, okay, how do we actually deal with this core failure? But um, 
I think there is just widespread disgust with the way that these people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, hang on to power long after the public really wants mm -hmm. them there. No, absolutely right. All right. All right, we've got some big developments this morning um, in terms of what happened on that fateful day when JFK was assassinated. Now, a little bit of context just for people to remember. Core to the idea put forward by the Warren Commission that you know led to the conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman was this idea of a pristine or magic bullet, which was discovered, which supposedly did you know all this damage to JFK, but also to uh, the governor that was there with him. And the bullet itself looked impeccable, like it hadn't done anything at all. So this was always one of the points that people were like, I don't know. But to found make on the, a stretcher. Yes, also, yeah, found on a yeah, stretcher, which yeah. becomes incredibly relevant. Right. But to make that whole theory work, they had to have this bullet doing things that no bullet has ever done before. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the backstory. So now we have one of the Secret Service agents who was actually charged with protecting protecting Jackie Kennedy. He has decided to tell his story, and he claims. And let's put this up on the screen from Vanity Fair. He claims he was actually the person who found that bullet, and he found it in Kennedy's limo. Mm. And the placement of where he found it is incredibly important because it would make no sense for that bullet to be in that location if it actually did all those things that the Warren Commission claimed that it did. Furthermore, part of what allowed them to draw that conclusion was there were two stretchers, right? There was one stretcher, that uh, had Governor Connolly, who was injured but not killed in the shooting, and one stretcher that had JFK. Uh, this Secret Service agent claims that he put the bullet at the hospital because he wanted to make sure that they had it and that it was an important piece of evidence, but he himself is you know, shocked and, and horrified and suffered mm -hmm. clearly with a lot of PTSD, et cetera. But he decides to put this bullet, he says, on Kennedy's stretcher. Now, for it to make sense that this bullet did all the things they said it did, it needed to have been instead with Governor Connolly's yep. body. So I know this can sound really like in the weeds, but this one bullet, like the, the Warren Commission really hung their entire conclusions on what happened with this one bullet. And so the fact that you now have a Secret Service agent who, you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly his own trauma, didn't want to speak out before, didn't actually dig into the Warren Commission report, didn't dig in until recently until any of the, um, you know, the other alternative explanations that are out there for what might have actually happened on this day. He has decided here now, while he's probably close to the end of his life, to come out and tell this story. So um, he says that he spotted this bullet resting on the top of the back seat. He picked it up, put it in his pocket, brought it into the hospital. Then upon entering trauma room number one, at that stage, he was the only non-medical person in the room besides Mrs. Kennedy. He insists he placed the bullet on a white cotton blanket on the president's stretcher. And this, Vanity Fair says, as it turns out, may upend key conclusions of the Warren Commission, the body created by President Lyndon Johnson to investigate the assassination. Yeah. And part of why, Sari, you have to have this one bullet doing so many things is because the type of gun that Lee Harvey Oswald supposedly used, like there was no way he could have himself mm -hmm. fired sufficient rounds in a short period, it was like two seconds that he would have had to fire sufficient rounds. And witnesses on the scene 
said, many of them said they heard more rounds than what the official conclusion in the report was. So you can see the way they sort of like cobbled things together to try to make this theory work and to rule out the possibility of any other gunman. Yeah, the magic bullet theory was uh, you know, invented by Arlen Specter. It was like the golden bow tie on the Warren Commission to be able to explain how exactly the amount of bullets that were technically fired possibly or thought to be by Lee Harvey Oswald was able to inflict the damage that it had been. We had the pristine bullet that was found on the stretcher. The important thing from Mr. Landis's thing is I think it's not just trauma. I think he was obviously he was afraid. I yeah. mean, that's that's really what comes through. If you if you go through and you uh, read uh, Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, and you have all these people who are involved in Manson, it's clearly that was CIA op gone terribly wrong. And many of the cops and others who are involved in that, even decades later, they're terrified to be able to speak to Tom O'Neill whenever he wrote that book. Well, it's the same thing here with many of these Secret Service agents. And don't forget, I mean, these guys were close up. They probably had blood, you know, smeared all over their clothes, and they were witness to a horrific murder, and then probably put through through the ringer and pressure from the FBI and investigative uh, sources. Another thing that he points to is that the scene was not secured at all. Uh, it's very important, really, where he says that uh, he did not, he was very concerned about how the scene was not secured properly, about how law enforcement was handling the evidence that was around. Um, and look, what what are we to make of what he says? Like you said, it cast doubt on the, ability, the original magic bullet theory itself, which never made any goddamn no. sense. But really what it is is, the only doubt we could say is, well, people's memories, you know, they age over time. Like, who knows if he if he's telling the truth or not. I'm inclined to believe him just because there's never been any, like, real scrap of evidence for the magic bullet theory in the first place. And because so much of the processing of the scene, of the evidence, and all that was so obviously manipulated by the FBI. I recommend uh, Oliver Stone's, you know, nearly four-hour docuseries on this that just came out. I think it came out last year or something like that. It was on Showtime. I'm not sure where it's available. Now, he goes through this in exhaustive detail, like, in terms of the the chain of custody, the autopsy photos, some of the manipulation that was going on there, the people who were actually at the um, book depository, whether they saw Lee Harvey Oswald, whenever they should have seen Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, just to me, it's just so odd. There's a no way that the Warren Commission, uh, the Warren Commission's narrative of what happened makes any sense. Yeah. Zero. Um, and anyway, I find it, uh, you know, important that we're also talking about it on 9-11, of course, um, because it's like, it's very important to keep up on all of these things because, the, you know, a lot of people believe this, um, at, at least at the time. But then as the, as the time went on, increasingly, increasingly, throughout the 70s and the 80s, there was a feeling with so many of the people who were not only who were involved, who were present on that day, but with the American public, they're like, this does, just doesn't make any sense. I think the latest yeah. polling was something like 60% of the American people do, now it's, do not buy right. the Warren Commission official explanation. You know, just to underscore some of what you're saying there, because it becomes really critical, you know, in this telling which stretcher yeah. the bullet ended up on. Was it Governor Connolly or was it JFK? And this um, Secret Service agent, Landis, he says that it was, he definitely placed it on JFK's stretcher. There was even testimony at the time of how the bullet went from one stretcher to yeah. the other stretcher. There was a Parkland Memorial Hospital engineer named Daryl Tomlinson who originally testified that the uh, two stretchers were in uh, very proximate locations and the one that had JFK on it got bumped and he saw a bullet fall off of that stretcher onto the floor. Now, under like badgering and bullying basically from Arlen Specter, his testimony became a little different when it came time for the Warren Commission, which shows you again how this was not just a straightforward fact-finding mission. 
Arlen Specter and many of the other people who were on that commission, who influenced that commission, they had a certain narrative they wanted that they tried to get all of the facts to fit. There's also a lot of questions about the autopsy that was performed and some of the pictures that disappeared and were never released and may have shown some evidence of other shrapnel, which again would point to additional rounds, which again would basically rule out the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. So somehow those pictures disappeared, don't know why, but could be very convenient um, for people who wanted a particular narrative to go forward and to be able to put this in the rearview mirror and not have a lot of people asking yeah. a lot of questions. Exactly. I thought it was interesting, Jefferson Morley, who's a JFK researcher and a former, I think, Washington Post journalist and uh, run, he's uh, has a substack called JFK Facts. His reaction was he said, the importance of this story is that the newspaper of record, because this was originally published in the New York Times, now acknowledges the official theory of a, quote, lone gunman is not very credible. Twice in three months, the paper's ace reporter has broken JFK news, and he goes on to say that he, uh, his substack is going to have more revelations on the way. But I do think that, that the fact that the dam has broken in some ways in terms of mainstream news questioning some of the official narrative that has been pushed for decades and decades at this point, I do think that that is noteworthy as well. 100%. Got to give all the credit to Oliver Stone. He's the one who uh, reopened this entire thing in 1999 with his film. Uh, that film had the JFK Assassination Records Act. That didn't end up working out because we still didn't get it. But yeah. that really reignited, you know, public attention and uh, you know, in terms of interest. And it's been going on now for, you know, that was before I was even born. That movie came out and still people like me are able to watch the movie and then engage with this documentary and more. So I, I give him all the credit in the world. I really think he's almost singularly responsible for bringing this back in terms of public attention and then paving the way over the last 30 years and opening it so that people like uh, Peter Baker can publish this in the New York Times. Really excellent stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep a close eye on that one. Tagar, what are you looking at this morning? Well, people in the gun world are often derided as paranoid conspiracy theorists. Nobody wants to take your guns. That's mostly the conventional line. It's held up recently until the 2020 Democratic primary race when Beto O'Rourke proudly declared, quote, damn right, we are coming for your AR-15. I actually appreciated when he said that because it's just obvious and true in the intent of what the end goal for a lot of the people who are opposed to gun rights actually want. At least now you can have a real debate. The mask off moment from Beto is now the second in terms of what those opposed to gun rights would do if they had the power. After a stunning episode in the state of New Mexico, the governor of the state, Michelle Lujan Grisham, has unilaterally declared a 30 day ban on carrying guns in public areas or state property in the city of Albuquerque through use of a public health emergency declaration. The details of the ban are almost too incredible to believe. The governor decided to put into place this blatantly unconstitutional ban after the death of a five-year-old girl and believes that the gun ban will provide a, quote, cooling off period of gun violence for the state so they can figure out the best way to address public safety. What really chills the blood, though, is not how draconian the ban is is, but the words that the governor used to defend it. You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your, your carrying license? With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency, and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right, in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, 
they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? I took an oath to uphold those two. And if we ignore this growing problem without being bold, I've said to every other New Mexican, your rights are subrogated to theirs. And they are not, in my view. Well, wait a minute. Okay. You're talking about crimes. There are already laws against the crimes, so how are their rights? I got it. But, but again, if I'm unsafe, who's standing up for that right? If this climate is so out of control, somebody should do something. I'm doing as much as I know to do. That is the purest distillation of the doctrine of safetyism I've ever heard. The governor declares that her commitment to the Constitution is not absolute, and worse, uses the justification of all evil. If I feel I'm unsafe, then my rights trump yours. That's the extension of COVID ideology, became normalized with lockdowns during the pandemic. No surprise to me that the governor's then using the public health emergency as justification for the order. And just to be clear, this order does directly violate the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution. In June 2022, the court ruled Americans have a right to carry firearms in public for self-defense after striking down a New York state law that sought to implement a provision that said you must need proper cause to carry a gun outside your home in the state. The case, colloquially known as Bruin, fundamentally altered any state's ability to infringe upon carry laws in public and directly set up this challenge now to the New Mexico governor. The iron is you do not need a pro-gun person like me to tell you any of this. Listen here, anti-gun activist David Hogg or Congressman Ted Lieu both tweeted some version of the following. I support guns safety laws, but this order violates the U.S. Constitution. There is no state in the union that can suspend the federal constitution. There is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. And I guess the worst person you know just did make a good point, as the meme says. As both Hogg and Lou have said, gun groups already are suing the state of New Mexico. It likely won't even survive much longer. Sheriff's offices are wary about even implementing it because what the governor wants, even though they could open themselves up now to civil litigation for blatantly violating as I said, constitutional rights. So at least in this case, it doesn't look like it may work. But don't delude yourself. If they could do it, they 100% would. And worse, all of it is a cover for much bigger problems that we are all trying to move past. The governor was spurred to action by this death of children killed in recent shooting spates, including one road rage incident in a minor league baseball game, or the shooting of a five-year-old killed in a drive-by shooting. Let's take the case of the five-year-old killed, for example. You can see why this ban doesn't even make any sense. Of the five people who were charged in the death of the five-year-old, only one suspect so far is even an adult. That adult is the girlfriend of one of the alleged shooters who is 17 years old. The others charged in the incident are aged 15 and 16, along with other teenagers. So other than the girlfriend of the person primarily thought responsible for the death of this young child, not one of these people could even legally buy or carry a gun. In fact, if we're talking about handguns, then not a single person even involved in the shooting could legally buy or carry one in the state of New Mexico. Or in the case of the 11-year-old, the shooter is actually still at large. We don't even know anything about them or if the gun they carry was legal or how it was obtained. They should be focusing on catching the killer instead of infringing on the rights of actually law-abiding citizens, and it just strikes at the core of what the gun-first people always reach for. They're trying to paper over what is an obvious societal illness that runs so much deeper than guns. Teenagers are doing drive-bys and people are killed in children and road rage accidents. That's what happens in a sick culture. And yes, you can say other countries have societal ills and they don't have shootings. You would be right. 
But don't forget, in our country, we do have an enshrined right to own and carry a gun if we so choose. In such a country, with already hundreds of millions of gun in private ownership, that is just simply how it's gonna go. That is not to say that we don't have a responsibility to each other, only we must understand and define the actual challenge we seek to address. In this case, it's clear, Crime was used to justify then an unconstitutional power grab and it shows the people who are gun owners too what the real agenda is and always has been. I'm curious what you think of this, Crystal. Uh, I know you're supportive of some gun restrictions mm -hmm. as well, but what did you make of the governor's order and then uh, kind of what I was talking about in terms of the crime and paper over? And we've had this discussion before about yeah. suicide and other there's, things. There's a lot yeah, of thoughts for... I have on it. I mean, this is unconstitutional <laughs> like it's it's just it goes way too far and but i take a little bit mm. of a different view because i was heartened to see that you had people who focus a lot on uh gun control oh, or gun hog. safety or however you want to put it who were like no yeah fair <laughs> enough. this is too far that's true and so um you know far from drawing the conclusion of like oh this is what the gun activists really want I actually saw the limits mm. of what most of the mainstream proponents of gun control, gun reform, however you want to label it, where they actually want to go. So I took the opposite um, uh, conclusion mm -hmm. from that side. The other thing I would question you on is uh, you said that this was, you know, evidence of the the cult or the view or the ideology of safetyism. Do you see it the same way? when it's Republicans using or pushing authoritarian tactics to deal with crime and law and order? Well, it, depend well, it depends because what there's, you mean by that. Because like, there's, more, there's more interest in, or uh, crime seems to be actually a hotter political issue definitely. on the right yeah. than it is on the left. So I'm curious if you see that same concern about like safety over everybody's rights being a problem when it comes from the right and their tactics. Well, I think that at the very least, and luckily, we have a well-defined civil liberties and Miranda rights that you know defendants and criminals are actually like subjected to. So it's not like we don't have an adjudicated process. But I mean, absolutely. I mean, I don't support policies like stop and frisk or anything like that, for right. example. And I think a lot of look, and you're not wrong. Uh, many people are 100% uh, hypocrites whenever it comes to this issue. And in fact. Like I'm an absolute defender of, of people's like ability to walk the street and not be accosted by police or pretext for any of these ridiculous things for search and seizure that a lot of these cops have. So, I mean, we've done plenty of stories on that here. Oh, You'll yeah. hear it from me too. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you probably won't hear it from them. Uh, I mean, I just think we want to live in a society where, look, if you're law abiding, if you have a gun, or if you're just walking down the street and happen to be black and bronc in the Bronx or something, you should be able to go about your business. That, I mean, that's just my view personally. Yeah, yeah. because there was a yeah. lot of support um, among not only Republican lawmakers, but the president of the United States at the time, a lot of um, you know Republican, like just regular rank and file people for like deploying the military when there were riots going on during George Floyd. And I didn't hear that being framed as like safetyism. And there was less concern about the unconstitutional power grab nature of uh, that direction coming from the right. So I actually am more accustomed to seeing authoritarian power grabs with regards to law and order and a sort of like lock lock them up, we got to crack down on crime above everything else. I'm more accustomed to seeing that from the right. This to me was like the liberal mirror image mm -hmm. of some of those tactics that I certainly don't support coming from I think from the you're right. right. You know, I've actually thought a lot about that. I think that uh, in that context, one of the reasons why people were willing to go along with it was, and I think myself included, was the idea that people's personal property was not being protected. And I think that I still believe that that was true. That said, I mean, I think I can look back on that and be like, yeah, that was, it'd be a terrible precedent, specifically in a type of civil, uh, like of civil unrest. And just to think about, you know, in terms of 
what we're actually trying to achieve and what we were trying to achieve at that time. And I think this is where the Floyd people got it totally wrong. And it uses a pretext for looting. A lot of uh, cops and others, you know, basically stood by. Uh, but at the end of the day, I do think it was a local responsibility. And I don't think the Fed should have stepped in, you know, at that time. So I've, I've thought about that a lot, you know, since then. And specifically also given what happened after January 6th, it was really just a, a complete vindication of the idea. It's like, look, when you get these people an inch, they're going to take it all the way. Yeah. And you just shouldn't get, you should never give it to them in the first place. Here's the other yeah. thing I'm curious about is um, I think for people who live in these areas, and I looked up while you're talking, I looked yeah. up the Albuquerque crime stats, homicides are up 71% from 2017 to 2022. They did actually decline some in, 20, uh, in mm -hmm. 2022 from the height I think was in 2021. Um, however, 71% increase over that time period, you know, people are still feeling like yeah, they're terrible. a danger, their kids aren't safe, et cetera. And I'm curious what the local reaction will be to her order. Because we know when people are stressed and fear for their own safety and don't feel secure in their own environment, unfortunately, too often they are willing to throw their rights or other people's rights aside for that sense of safety and protection. So while there was a lot of um, sort of national level condemnation, I'm actually curious how people there locally respond to the order and if they have the same reaction or if they have more of a like, good, at least somebody's right. doing something kind I'm of I'm curious approach. too. But I mean, here's the thing. DC, where you and I are right now, we have the strictest gun laws in the country. Our homicide rate is actually not gone down at all. We have over 100% increase in property crime and in genuine like gun deaths. So it's like, it's not the gun laws, people. You know, you could, you literally can yeah, walk yeah, I mean, but DC is like right in the middle, of, yeah, right next right. to Virginia and you know, you can't expect just one locality change sure. their gun laws to but have an impact. I'm, more what I'm saying is you can walk, to, and they do this all the time. It's, I mean, listen, go look at the D.C. prison and look at the number one way that they throw people in jail. Gun charge. No, that's They'll true. give you five years for a single bullet that you have wrong yeah. that's in your pocket. I mean, they use it as a pretext all the time. It's not doing anything. You know, if you're worried about homicide, people stop people here all the time now, as from what I've heard recently, and search their cars and other, look for yeah. guns. And that's one of the number one ways that they try and crack down on crime. We still have a huge homicide rate. Yeah. It's just one of those where it's like, it's clearly not going to do anything. I, I don't, yeah. I wouldn't say it won't yeah. do anything. I mean, I, in this instance, I actually agree. I doubt yeah. it will do anything just because you're talking about in one little city, right? So right. you're not going to change the overall national culture of gun ownership mm -hmm. by changing the rules and regulations in one particular city. I'm more, I'm, I'm curious about what the public reaction will be to it. If there is a positive reaction, at least someone is trying to do something. And then overall, I mean, I don't think you can deny that where we are an outlier is the number of guns that we have in no our question. society and the ease of access and all of that. And I mean, I, in my mind, there's no doubt that that plays into the level of violence that we have in our society versus other countries. Um, but in terms of this order, 100% agree with you. Unconstitutional power grab, don't support it. Mm. Don't think it will probably have much of an impact. Hopefully. Yeah, even yeah. I don't even think it will have much of an impact because of some of the limitations that you're pointing out. But, um, you know, it does raise for me some other questions about some of the approaches mm. to law and order and tough on crime that seem to get more of a pass. Yeah. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, a recent AI news generation program at a major newspaper was pulled after publishing hilariously bizarre high school sports articles. Okay, here are the details. Gannett, which owns USA Today and a whole slew of local papers, started using AI to generate local news stories and the results were amazingly bad. Here is a great example. Quote, Westerville North escapes Westerville Central in thin win 
in Ohio high school football action. Wow, totally sounds like a human being wrote that for sure. Please continue. The article goes on. Westerville North edged Westerville Central 21 to 12 in a close encounter of the athletic kind at Westerville North High on August 18th in Ohio football action. The Warriors chalked up this decision in spite of the Warhawks' spirited fourth quarter performance. In a different story, AI failed to figure out what the school's mascots were, and they published the Worthington Christian winning team mascot defeated the Westerville North losing team mascot two to one in an Ohio boys soccer game on Saturday. Now, Gannett has since suspended this uh, experiment, presumably leaving it to the actual human beings to try to report on future thin wins and close encounters of the athletic kind. This particular situation is, of course, an embarrassment, both for Gannett, which has fired a bunch of their employees over the past couple of years, as the news business, and especially the local news business, has declined and become more difficult. And it is obviously embarrassing for the entire AI industry, which far from being ready to revolutionize the workforce or decimate the workforce, can't even credibly publish the most basic information about the most basic events without being utterly absurd, unreliable, and inaccurate. So at least when it comes to the drafting and publishing of news stories, I think the journos, for now, can rest easy. ChatGPT isn't any more prepared to take over the news industry than autonomous driving is prepared to take over taxi and truck driving. So for now, I guess, score one for humanity. But the victory is honestly marginal, because in another deeper sense, the robots and their masters, they've already won a lot in terms of how news is generated and how it's disseminated, and we barely even noticed the attack. What do I mean here? Well, as you know, I'm a big proponent of independent media as an antidote to corporate legacy media. But the further we get into this new era, which is in many ways exciting and continues to hold deep promise, the more I see the limitations of what independent actually means. Because while individual creators can break free from the constraints of giant corporate profit-driven news conglomerates, they're still beholden to the incentives created by the tech giants on which they depend. And probably the most powerful force in independent news generation is YouTube's algorithm. We all live or die by it. Its whims, preferences, amplifications, and punishments have created the independent news ecosystem as we know it. Individual creators can try to resist its siren song. We have intentionally tried to algorithm-proof and big tech-proof our business here at Breaking Points. But it's like one person trying to stand up to a force of nature. The overall landscape is going to be shaped and built by the big tech AI reward system. And it's not just on the creator side. These robots are also shaping your brain, messing with your view of the world, driving you towards certain content and away from others. On Facebook, a whistleblower revealed how the platform's algorithm rewarded anger emojis at five times the weight of likes, aggressively pushing highly emotional content into user feeds. Facebook, like other platforms, cares more about how long you spend on the platform being served ads and having your data harvested than how much you're actually enjoying that time or whether the quality of your experience is good or bad. They also use their user base like guinea pigs conducting social experiments attempting explicitly to manipulate user emotions and even to push them to become closer friends with some in their networks over others. Creepy stuff that we have little awareness of and even less say over. Twitter, under Elon Musk, has used the For You page to aggressively push certain content and hide other content. But unlike the other platforms, Musk's Twitter has opted to make their biggest content decisions based on the personal whims and preferences of their sovereign lord, Elon, who can bless or punish creators based on his own ego and worldview. In a sense, I actually appreciate the blatant nature of Elon's approach. He strips some of the AI mystique away and just makes it super clear the way that our oligarchs are screwing with us every day. 
Now, on its surface, our universe of multi-platform news looks independent, like individual humans making individual decisions. And listen, there is a lot of that going on at the micro level and a lot of fantastic creators out there. But at the macro level, it is a garden of creators and content cultivated, tilled, and pruned by robots. Human beings unaware how they're being programmed by machines who have in turn been programmed by tech giants to drive their own profits or corporate agendas. So before the chatbots and deep fakes have even really joined the war, humanity has already lost. One war that it was being waged in secret under the cloak of the supposedly free market, where they declared victory before we even really caught on to what was happening. For this next battle that we're facing now, at least the tech for now is clunky enough that we can all see what the boss's robots are up to. A close encounter of the oligarchic kind, I guess you could say. Um, it did really get me thinking. About and if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to all the premium members for supporting our focus group. We got more stuff for you all week that we're gonna continue bringing, and we will see you all tomorrow. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.